Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is supported this week by SKP Creative. We live in an online world and online reviews have the ability to make or break your business. Reviews powered by SKP Creative is the fastest and easiest way to get great reviews from your loyal customers on the platforms of your choice. There's no complicated setup, no expensive training, just a simple, intuitive interface created with small business owners in mind. Visit reviews.skpcreative.com to start generating more reviews for your business today. That's reviews.skpcreative.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to the College Prep School Ascension Academy, online at ascensionacademy.org. The latest issue of Brick and Elm just came out. Its cover story is about the best brunch restaurants in Amarillo, and you can read the free edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Jim Womack. Jim is the Chief Executive Officer of Family Support Services of Amarillo, a job he's had for almost 10 years, and during which time he's weathered a cancer diagnosis and treatment, a fire that destroyed the organization's downtown headquarters, and, like all of us, the pandemic. So it's been a lot. Family Support Services serves more than 25,000 people every year working with victims of sexual assault and family violence, helping at-risk children and their families, assisting veterans, providing counseling, and a lot more all under Jim's leadership. So we talk about that stuff. Here's Jim Womack. Jim Womack, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, good to see you, Jason. Thank you for the invite. Absolutely. Thanks for doing the show. I, I know you listened to it, and we've known each other for a while, but I'm, uh, I'm excited to sit down and hear more of your story. I want to start the same way that I do with all of my guests, and that's to ask you why you're here. How did you end up in the Amarillo area? Well, that's a good question. I actually grew up in southeast Colorado, and which, uh, you know, Amarillo was one of the bigger cities. I mean, it was close to that location, and you know, that was out in the middle of nowhere. Actually, the population density is less than the Sahara Desert. I looked it up. So wow, is like, it yeah, really? Yeah, so Amarillo was really the big city. Okay. So, so when I graduated from high school, I... Uh, you know, applied to some different colleges and came down and visited WT and came down to WT and I've stuck around ever since. What's the nearest town near where you grew up? Well, there, the the town is called Campo, Colorado. So I don't know if, any, if you've heard of Lamar, Colorado. Yeah. So that's the probably the bigger Colorado town, okay. even though it's still a small city. But. So almost entirely rural setting yes, up there. Yes, yeah. And, but it it feels a lot like the panhandle. I mean, you're not yeah. up in the mountains. It's all just kind of grassland. Yeah, exactly. I used to get the question all the time about, why, well, why'd you move here from Colorado? It's like, well, it looks just about the same. Yeah. You know, it's the, it was barely Colorado. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, it used to actually be part of the Republic of Texas. That, yeah. That, part, that, that so. little sliver that yeah. stuck up to the north. Yeah. So what, what did you... Um, you know, when you came here to WT, like, what was your goal? Did you know what you wanted to do? Um, well, no, I didn't. So I actually rotated through several different majors. I was a, I thought initially computers, and you know, that's back when they had a like Commodore sixty four that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, so I did that for a few semesters and did graphic design. Uh, so did that for a while. Then I guess I've maybe had a defiant streak. I didn't like people telling me how to draw so <laughs> or paint. So I quit that and. Um, anyway, I ended up as a criminal justice major, so hmm. my bachelor's degree is actually in criminal justice. So, like, was the your family 
in farming or agriculture or something like that? Yes. So, um, well, my dad had uh, left the, he was in the special forces in the army and then left okay. and met my mom going through Colorado. So uh, they ended up settling in southeastern Colorado where my grandparents live. So um, started out as farmers and ranchers. And my dad had uh, went to Sol Ross for a, for a sports. So he ended up being a coach. So he is a very successful coach up there in Colorado. So it's kind of a combination, sports, ranching, that kind okay. of thing. You didn't have any interest in going either of those directions. Well, I... One of the good things about being in a small town like that is you get to experience all the sports, uh, any activity you, you really want to try. I was started on the, like the basketball team and all that, but uh, I would have, yeah, there's no way I could play at a college level. <laughs> yeah. So so that was something that I enjoyed that in high school and, and benefited from that. But uh, as far as the coaching, um, it just kind of went another direction. Okay. I liked your, My grandmother is from England and she was a war bride from World War II. So, oh, yeah. So she actually got me really interested in uh, in reading when I was very young. So, well, actually, I was a little history major for a little while too. So, I really enjoyed that and uh, reading. So I kind of went a different direction as far as uh, physical activity versus you know, I guess mental mental activity. activity. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. As so. you as you found your way into being a criminal justice major, did you have like a, a career path that you were looking for? Well, I, I thought I did. So I went. Uh, Right after I graduated, well, I went. I did an internship at the Community Supervision and Corrections Department, so which is the probation office, basically. So I was, I was a probation officer for about five years, and it actually kind of changed my personality, just because of the way I kind of reacted to things. So I was kind of a in a jaded. Uh, I felt jaded, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, tried, I saw people as for for things or against things, and so. Um, after I left there, I did go to family support services for a few years, and that was kind of a life-changing experience. It kind of opened my eyes to how I, I'd forgotten that I really like to help people and you know uh, live better lives, that kind of thing, which I'd kind of forgotten when I was a probation officer. That's that's one thing I, I know several uh, individuals who are, you know, in a, a peace officer or a protective sort of uh, criminal justice position, you know, maybe they're cops, maybe they've worked uh, at, at the prisons. And like like they have told me, it is really easy because you're just facing the worst of humanity right. all day long. It is easy to, to sort of get that cynicism, you know, from a, a mental health perspective. And right. I, I would like, like that was the case with you, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so, in, and actually in the position I held, it was kind of specialized. There's a couple of them, but one of those was a uh, electronic monitoring. So those were the high level felony cases. So that's, that's who I saw every day was mm-hmm. people that had been convicted of felonies. And then another position I had was called pretrial investigation. So I would go out to the area jails and do background, well, background studies on of people facing murder charges, that kind of thing. So that's that's what was what I saw every day. So that's what I thought about all the time. So yeah, it's a yeah. danger of the job, right? That either you have to learn to live with or right. counteract, or you know maybe it's not the job for you, right? Yeah, and I, evidently I wasn't very good at it. So I I uh, ended up going to, again to family support services, and I worked in the education department for a while, and at the safe house as a children's advocate, and so that I really enjoyed that experience and uh, led me to do some other things later. Okay. So what, what year was that when you first started working for family support services? So, um, the first time was, uh, let's see, I believe it was the 1997. I worked there 
full time for two years. And I was, uh, you know, worked there filling in some places a couple of years after that. So, and then at that time I moved to uh, Texas Panhandle Centers, mm -hmm. uh, behavioral health, ended up, um, you know, doing several jobs there, starting out like as a, doing assessments and case management. And then, uh, well, as the director of, it was kind of a combination in a good way of my previous experience. I was the director of the Texas Council on Offenders with Mental and Medical Impairments. I was like the regional director of that. So I would go out to the area jails and prisons and, and uh, it was, it was people that were uh, going to be released soon. So they were always happy to see me because yeah. when they saw me, they knew they were going to be released. You so, were good news. Right. Right. So I would see what type of uh, assessments to determine what type of mental health needs they might, might have and refer them to aftercare if they needed that. Those sound a lot like, you know, social work kinds right, of positions right. that, I mean, and, and that's different from what you studied at WT. Yes, like, is, is that something that, you know, there's enough on the job training that you can kind of find your way into doing that? Well, well? Uh, yes, you can. And they do provide on the job training and I went, you know, I took training courses, that kind of thing. And, and actually one of my coworkers is a licensed clinical social worker and it really kind of a gets under her skin because I say, well, I'm a social worker too. And just as a joking, in a joking way, but she doesn't really appreciate the humor <laughs> in that. So, but uh, yeah, there is, there was a lot of that in, in those positions. I, one thing I know, and I have some friends who, who work in that sort of field and it's not for everybody. It, right. it takes a certain, a certain kind of personality and way of, of dealing with people, whether that's patients, whether that's you know, resilience or, or whatever that might be. Right. Um, like, uh, tell me what, what makes somebody good at, at any, any of those kinds of positions. Right. So, well, in, in reality, I'm really not a social worker. I'm more of analytical kind of person, I guess you could say, although I did, you know, I do like helping people, but there are people that are much better at it than I am. And so it does take a certain personality, um, where you really want to help people and, and understand their problems and, uh, really help them, either provide them with maybe some coping techniques or refer them to somebody who can help them. But it's really focusing more on the, I'll, I'll say client instead of, of yourself. So it's really guiding them to uh, whatever they need in, in a, living a healthier life. Okay. So family support services has been around for a long time. Right. Um, and, and since you worked there in the nineties, mm -hmm. like, how was it different back then? Well, you know, some things, uh, oddly, they're still similar. Like we do have a, Strengthening Families Program, which is a similar program, which goes into the schools and works with families that may have a child that's uh, at risk of truancy, that kind of thing. And, and it's a very successful program. And we actually do still have, right now, we have uh, two counselors that were on the staff back then. Really? Yes. They've been on staff. One of those uh, counselors has been on staff since the 70s. So he's highly experienced. And, That's a lot yeah, of experience. Yeah, so he's uh, got quite a few years under his belt. So the divisions are similar, although there's been changes that uh, we've made. So one of the things a few years ago is we looked at it and say, just because we've always done something doesn't mean we have to do it, continue to do it this way. So say, for instance, our prevention program, you know, 10 years ago was our smallest division, and now it's actually our biggest because we realized – we can always react to these these uh, problems and still staff and do that. But if we head off problems earlier, you know, hopefully we'll you know, joke about putting ourselves out of business at some point, but that's what we'd really like yeah. to do. So working with kids when they're younger and uh, 
addressing issues that, you know, can keep them out of jail or the hospital or even from dying later. So that's what we're, we've kind of focused more on that okay. the past few years. So you, you eventually found your way back to family support right. services um, and, you know, a leadership role there. Tell me how that happened. Well, um, when I was at Texas Panhandle Centers, eventually I moved into the role of a director of planning and, and uh, development there. I did that for quite a few years, I believe five or six years. And a lot of the skills I developed there is kind of being the, I guess you could say the face of the agency and, you know, just in the development process, that kind of thing. When the family support services uh, position came open, the um, executive director at that time, she kind of mentioned to me that, that it was opening up and if I knew anybody that wanted to apply. So I kind of, she felt like she encouraged me to apply, which mm-hmm. I'd like to believe. So, so it was a, uh, when we looked at when I looked at the job description, it was basically all of the things I was doing at Texas Panhandle Centers in many ways. Uh, some of the strengths they were looking for were things I had in my background, so that's kind of how that developed. And then I uh, had some experience on local boards, so that kind of okay. thing. So that that helped also. What year did you take that position? Uh, two thousand was all aware now, so it was two thousand thirteen. Okay. Yes, December of that year. And you know, for people that you know, aren't fully aware, maybe they've heard the name family support mm-hmm. services, but they've never, you know, been in a position where they need those services. So can, can you sort of give listeners an idea of the breadth of what the organization does? Sure. And that is a, something we talk about quite often. We've actually had planning sessions on what can we change our name to? What can we change mm-hmm. our name to? And it kind of, it kind of fits, although we do so many things that uh, it's hard to do a 30 second elevator speech. Well, yeah. I'll give you more than 30 seconds. Okay, well, Take as that. much yeah. time as you need. <laughs> We originally started out as a more like a traveler's assistance agency and a social welfare agency way back in the well 1908. So okay. that that long ago. Yes. Then. So over the years, it kind of transitioned into more uh, well counseling and um, into that area. So uh, there was actually a permutations, I guess, of the organization way back in the 40s it was strictly counseling, which was you know. Pretty advanced for way back then. Yeah, yeah. And then they also had a Veterans Resource Center, oddly enough, back then. And then uh, after World War II, and then it kind of um, faded away. And then we brought it back years later. But uh, so, so our uh, our service areas right now are domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. As we uh, help survivors get out of those situations, um, and we do have the areas only safe house for survivors uh, based here in Amarillo. Uh, so we, and we have caseworkers that help write, you know, legal, uh, you know, protect orders, that kind of thing. So uh, that's a, been a fairly consistent program for years. And it, it started out actually as the Red Crisis Domestic Violence uh, Program or Center uh, way back in the, I think that was the name of it in the 80s. Okay. And then uh, what was formerly known as Family Guidance Center, that's strictly counseling. So those two agencies merged in 1993 to form Family Support Services okay. again. So our, we do have a robust counseling program. Uh, when we provide counseling to all ages, uh, we have play therapy for kids. Uh, we provide uh, different tra- types of trauma counseling, which we get referrals, both self-referral uh, or from our safe house or, you know, from doctor's offices okay. uh, just across the community. And then we have our, uh, well, again, our education and prevention department, and we also have sexual assault response services. So if there's a there's a sexual assault call that goes out to Northwest Texas and they have to do a, a sexual assault exam, um, 
our advocates go out there to help the, the survivor through the process, okay. Okay. guide them through the process, or to the bridge to help the kids over there um, through that process. T- tell me how many employees well, the organization right, has. Yes, right now we have about uh, 50, I believe it's 58 at last count. Okay. We did have 70 before we lost our building to fire a few years right. ago. So we didn't really, we don't, whenever somebody's retired since then, we have laid up here. We've held off on filling that position until we get in our new spot. Okay. So, so it's, I would say historically, well, the past 10 years or so, it's been closer to 70. Okay. And, and we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. But before we get to that part, how is the organization funded? Is, is it like most nonprofits where, you know, everything is donated or are there other like, you know, state programs or things mm-hmm. that, that provide some funding for you? We do support a lot of our, a lot of our work through donations. We also do contract with like Health and Human Services mm-hmm. to operate our safe house and to uh, provide some counseling. Uh, so some of the counseling is funded through, through that. So we don't charge for any services there uh, except for counseling, which is on a sliding scale. So depending on how much somebody makes, that's how much they pay. And in a lot of cases, they don't have to pay anything. Okay. If they're a victim of crime, if they're a veteran, uh, they can get counseling through our Veterans Resource Center. And then we, uh, so a lot of it is government funding, different types of grants. Well, for instance, our child abuse prevention program, it's it's uh, funded through the DFPS, Department of Family and Protective Services. So it's, uh, it's a lot of it's state funding that we've pulled together. Okay. And you mentioned the fire. So I, I know uh, your headquarters were downtown right uh, off of polk street and then there was a fire there tell me about that experience okay well <laughs> as you can imagine it's quite a shock so um it was on uh, january 19th of 2020 so it was on a sunday morning is when it kind of blew up and they thought they had it under control and then mm-hmm. realized they couldn't control it so it ended up being a they called it a two alarm fire so they had all the trucks just trying to help just trying to stop it from uh, spreading to the surrounding buildings right so basically, we've lost everything. So there's a few things you wouldn't think would survive. There's like a, a drafting desk, uh, just a few things that we can we're going to display in our new no, place. No, that, that actually survived. Yes, the, yeah, the, oddly, yeah. But most of it was completely destroyed. So, um, what was the cause of that fire? I never officially heard. The the insurance investigators that came and looked. They, the last questions they were asking of me was that uh, about a. a surge protector, which is supposed to prevent that. Mm-hmm. So that was the last I heard. And they, of course, uh, everything was covered by insurance, but they believe it was either surge protector or wiring on the surge protector or some kind of wiring issue. So that's that's uh, the last we've heard. And, you know, uh, we've we've learned the past couple of years that, you know, a lot of organizations have had to, to shift and, and move right. to remote work and, and make a lot of wholesale changes like that as a result of the pandemic. You know, this was a couple months before the pandemic, and you're not, you know, just a small five or six employee organization that right. can be super nimble. So tell me, <laughs> like, in the aftermath of that with, you know, dozens of employees, like, what what was going through your mind as, as the leader? Well, that's one of the things I'm very grateful for. Uh, I mean, the resilience of our staff. So everybody is very supportive on our staff and gung-ho and nobody complained. And we're, we're willing to do anything they had to do. And so the, right away, you know, we probably jumped the gun, but, you know, just wheels turning and everything. We even, well, for instance, the board chair uh, of Guy and Saunders Resource Center a couple of us actually went over there that same afternoon because they offered some space over there. So I'm very thankful to live in Amarillo because I don't know if this would have happened anywhere else. Yeah. So, 
Um, and then the executive director of Texas Panhandle Centers offered us administrative space in their administrative building. And then um, eventually, a few weeks later, Boys Ranch offered us some space for our counselors. So we were kind of spread out. And then a lot of staff were still were working from home. So we kind of had a trial run. I mean, that was oddly enough, it's one of the positive things that came out of the fire was we had a trial run for COVID mm-hmm. because we set up a telehealth system for our counselors so they could see counselor, or their clients over either their laptop or their cell phone and do the sessions from their house. Uh, whereas before, you know, they, most of the time they would come to the office and, uh, but that was still a few weeks before yes, yeah. so the we, pandemic reached Amarillo. And then AISD voted to allow us to use their, one of their buildings right next to their headquarters, mm-hmm. um, for six months rent free, which is a huge blessing. So it was another thing that we're very thankful of. So what ended up happening is we basically moved everything into everybody into the building and it was exactly two weeks later, everybody back out. So, so we functioned remotely again. Uh, we did have some rotation on the, on the staff, uh, going into the building, that kind of thing. So that's kind of how we, that, that happened. (laughs) And so actually just in a few weeks after that, I was diagnosed with cancer. So. I was, I actually probably missed a few of those things in there, some of the, but mm-hmm. it was in the, the staff again. I'm very thankful for our staff because they kept it running and you know, I was out for a, well, um, I couldn't go into the office and I was out basically, I guess, uh, home, homebound for about almost two months, mm-hmm. continue, t- continuing through the treatment as it got worse then, then was able to go back to work. And, uh, so it's been, you know, 2020 was a wild yes, year. Yes, it was for a wild you. year. So I got all th- <laughs> all three of my bad things out of the way, right? right yeah, just cluster them together. So, and yeah. So tell me what that was like. There are a lot of jobs where people could go remote. You know, they were technology jobs, you know, uh, people creating things or, you know, managing software, whatever. Mm-hmm. Your employees are in the people business. I mean, right. you're, you're serving people. And so mm-hmm. even though, Temporarily, you were without a headquarters, even though people were working from home. Like major parts of of their work involve face to face interaction right. with people. So how did how did they navigate that? So um, we never stopped services through all of that. I mean, we're at, we're actually up and running. One of our services, like our Veterans Resource Center, we were operating within one day after the fire, and then. Um, the rest of our services were open within two days. So even through COVID and all that, we, were, we continued to operate without shutting down the actual service part. Our staff were really good about almost uh, transforming some of their service delivery into what was needed at the time. For instance, our Strengthening Families program, which was school-based, they actually evolved into more of a family support, uh, which I guess fits our name, uh, <laughs> program where they would go by their family's homes and see what they needed. And they okay. would go get groceries for them and drop off groceries, you know, make sure they were doing okay if they were sick. And it was, that, that was the way, like our education program, that's kind of, they, they switched to really going to the houses and helping the clients through the, through all this. And then again, our counseling department where, where they were able to, they could come into the office and do telehealth or they could go to, uh, to their homes and do it. Um, but then, uh, we did start opening up our some of our support groups again and practice social distancing, mm-hmm. which is hard in the place right now. But we did figure it out. So, and we did do some of the support groups even virtually part of the time, um, which we found is is very, pretty very effective with counseling. But the support groups, we don't. It's not so much not as effective. 
So it was a learning process for yeah. all that too. So, so uh, then we just kind of go by the CDC guidelines and as things open back up, we open back up and just dealt with it on a crisis basis, like basically for the last two years. So, and I, I know that you are uh, in a position now where you have a new building. Mm-hmm. It's currently, you know, being remodeled, um, rehabilitated in, in order right. to, to meet your needs. Tell me about that process. Okay. Well, so that's another, and I mentioned that earlier today. It's, I'd, I wouldn't recommend that people get a new building by going through what we went through, <laughs> but it's it's been a very positive thing because we'll actually have a much bigger, better space to provide services. All of our staff will have, um, for the most part, their own offices, unless their position is like a group-based program. All the offices will have windows, and we'll have much more operation space for our programs, such as our support groups, we'll have some conference room space, so we can actually reach more people in that location than we did downtown and uh, we won't have to have like four people to an office so yeah we're we're very blessed on that and so the process was actually i'd asked a, a friend about who's a realtor uh, uh, ben wettenberg about uh, keeping his eye open if something came open and he said i think you might want to look at this building so we went over there and uh, we thought this is going to be a great fit we should say it's it's the Yes, the large okay. mirrored building right. right across from the old Northwest Texas hospital. Yes, People yes. probably have driven by it. They would recognize it. Right, exactly. So it's a 2209 Southwest 7th. And a lot of people know it as the Cactus Feeders building. Mm-hmm. So uh, originally it was a medical towers building. And it was built for, for a doctor's offices for the old Northwest Texas hospital, which is right across the street. And it's now a I believe it's been a retirement community, but I believe they're they're uh, maybe renovating that into something different okay. also. So it's kind of a, that whole area now is kind of seems to be uh, renovating or yeah, some new up. life there. Yes, yeah, new least. life. That's a good way to say it. So, tell me what's the uh, what's the timeline for being able to finish out all the remodel? The timeline we were given was uh, November first of this mm-hmm. year. So there's still you know with with all the delays and construction that kind of thing, we've been very lucky, but they do think it'll be pushed out maybe four weeks. So hopefully by the end of this year, uh, we will be in there. Okay. Yeah. Does having that additional space, do you look at it as this helps us to do our existing work better, or this gives us room to expand into something bigger? Yes. So it it does both. Okay. So, but the, our services will be better. I mean, we'll be able to, uh, again, be more comfortable, that kind of thing, but we'll be able to provide more support groups. We do have a, a, human trafficking program that's labor trafficking. So we'll have offices for those staff in our building and, and be able to expand some of those services. Uh, we'll be able to have a day area for uh, survivors of uh, domestic violence, human trafficking that are in our uh, safe house because we don't really have room over there to to you know do training for, for clients, that kind of thing. So we'll be able to have a computer bank where they can come over and work on resumes or, or just hang out, that kind of thing. We're excited about the potential of the program so we can expand. Okay. Do you mind if I ask about your health? Yes. Yeah, so the last uh, two scans, I do have some after effects, like sometimes my... Uh, raspy voice. Yeah, and- raspy voice. So uh, that's one of those. But overall, all the, the CAT scans I've had have uh, turned out they can't find anything right now. Hmm. So I have one next month. And if that's Clear, we'll be able to kind of scoot things out. So right now there's no sign of cancer. So I'm, okay. I'm pleased about that. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as am I. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Tell so. me about going through that 
you know, six, nine month period, whatever, where you're the pandemic began, you had to move or find a place to work because your building burned down, you were going through cancer treatments. What what did you learn about this community? And and just all those different things okay. and, and the trials that you personally went through, but also that your organization went through. Right. So again, if if we weren't in Amarillo or the Texas Panhandle, I I don't I don't really know if we would have recovered from all this. I and mean, we we were around, you know, for hundred at that time hundred and twelve years. But everybody, I mean, it was all, I mean, I can't, I can't name everybody that supported us, but everybody stepped up and um, even the uh, Amarillo Area Foundation stepped up and purchased our old property from us right away mm-hmm. where, you know, there's lots downtown that have been there on the market for 10, 12 years that haven't sold. So they knew that would help us. And uh, so just the support from the community helped us, guide us through that and the resilience again of, of our staff, uh, it was just, I mean, I can't be more thankful to work there, even through all this. And then when I started the, the well, my treatment at Harrington, uh, I, you know, well, I basically thank them for saving my life. So it's a, I mean, I can't really, I don't see myself ever moving from Amarillo. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and that's, that kind of cinched the deal. So. Is that something that you ever thought about when you were a kid, you know, thinking about, well, I'm here in Southeast Colorado, I'm going to get out of here and go someplace else. Like was Amarillo on your radar at no, that point? No, it wasn't. No, I actually went, uh, I got a couple of scholarships to deputy, but I'd also got some to di- some other different schools. And I don't know, I just kind of, a. would actually come down for a basketball camp when I was in high school. So I was kind of familiar with it. So it was, it was more familiar, I think. And, you know, I don't know if that was the reason or not, but I I ran into some really nice people and on the, the campus visit. And I did know a couple of people that had come down to WT. So I think that's kind of why I ended up here, but I didn't really expect to stay around here. Mm-hmm. So does it feel yeah. like a surprise that you ended up here? Uh no. I mean not doesn't right now. I mean doesn't to I mean, me now. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, maybe it was always kind of meant to be. It doesn't really seem like a surprise, but that's you know. I mean I thought about I've had opportunities to go do other things elsewhere, but uh, it does feel like home. So, so I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. So, <laughs> Hey, Amarillo is supported this week by the Texas Outdoor Musical. It's July, and that means you only have a little more than a month left to see the Texas Outdoor Musical. Even if you've attended it in a previous season, I recommend that you go get tickets for this year. Number one, there's a new cast. Number two, there's a new artistic director, Stephen Crandall. This show is better than ever before. Reserve your tickets now at texasshow.com. That's texas-show.com. Hey, Amarillo is also supported by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy is a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family, and they live right here in town. Almost everything they sell is American-made, and they offer a lot more than just recliners. But right now, they have a ton of recliners in stock, so you can buy those today and take them home today. Visit Amarillo's locally-owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sonsi. And one more thing, as in years past, this podcast is the lead sponsor for the Hey Amarillo Beer Fest that is coming up Saturday, July 23rd at Starlight Ranch. At this celebration of local beer culture, you can sample beer from independent breweries from Amarillo, Lubbock, Dumas, Borger, and beyond. The Beer Fest is July 23rd at Starlight Ranch. Watch for ticket info soon. 
Okay, I'm back with Jim Womack of Family Support Services. Jim, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a wall that shows the evolution of the ancient bison to the modern-day American buffalo. And you can actually see in sequence the visible changes to the animal's horns from skull to skull. It's super interesting. Uh, over thousands of years. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, I'm going to ask you a new question in eight straight, and this is not one I've asked my guests before, but when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I actually think about Amarillo 10, 10 years back, and it looks so much different now than it did. It's almost unrecognizable in some places for the better. Yeah. So I, my hope is is that in another 10 years, we can see some of that um, – Developments, maybe in other areas of town that mm-hmm. haven't been focused on, and and you know bring those areas back to life. It may be some of the historical areas that have kind of been forgotten, in, in right. my opinion. So, see, seeing improvement in those areas, I think, would be awesome. Even if you just look at something like downtown, you know, 2012. Yeah, Polk Street was sleepy back then, right. and yeah. and you see all the changes just in the last few years. That ten years from now, if, if we could do that process in other parts of town, that would right. be amazing. Yeah, it would be. Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Well, it kind of goes along with the, the development, I guess. Um, when I'm thinking strictly of Amarillo, I hate to see old buildings that have some historical value torn down and made into a parking lot. So I think there's maybe too many parking lots. <laughs> so I, th- I would prefer to see either renovation or green space. I know there's probably a need in some cases that you don't recognize, but that's, that's, I guess that's my answer. Too many parking lots. Yeah. It's uh we're definitely a driving culture. And I think the number of parking lots certainly reflects that. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, green spaces and st- especially, you know, on, on strings of heat wave days, like we've had now, you just want more green <laughs> <Right>. and less <laughs> asphalt concrete. Yeah. What does this area not have enough of? I think uh, maybe recognition of the, the positive things in Amarillo. I don't think outsiders maybe recognize everything that's going great in Amarillo. I know there's some recognition, but, you know, even the even the recreation advantages, a lot of people may drive through town and just see, you know, everything's flat and nothing to do, but there's there's great things to do around here. You mentioned or the uh, Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, mm-hmm. Paladur Canyon. And I know there's some other places that are de- being developed around here, and I think it's going to be a maybe a draw for more tourism, even though it is now, but hopefully that will improve that. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Uh, if it's somebody from downstate, I say we're the Arctic tundra of Texas, just because <laughs> you know it may be ninety degrees down there and it's forty in Amarillo, yeah. so they kind of recognize that. Uh, also, uh, I describe it as someplace that has been very is known as being very conservative, but the people are really invested in helping other people, which I think is related to the history where everybody used to have to work together to to survive. So I think that's kind of carried on in the okay. culture. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point. Um, okay. Other than your own, we can take that off the table. What local nonprofit do you love? Uh, I hate to narrow it down, but if it has to be one, I would think uh, I would think maybe Texas Panhandle Centers because I learned a lot when I worked there, and also they were basically the initial nonprofit to step up in helping us recover after the fire. Okay. Even though others did also on the same day, they were the ones who first stepped up to me. So. And I don't think people realize, you know, there are so many nonprofits in Amarillo, and they're not all carving out their own kingdoms. There's a right. lot of working together on projects, a lot of overlap in some of the things they do. Yeah, and in overlap, it's it's the overlapping of working together, but most of the nonprofits do not duplicate what other nonprofits do, so they do work together to 
to address needs in the community. So it's a fantastic atmosphere for nonprofits. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant? Well, there, I'm going to I'm going to switch it. I'm going to say uh, Flamingos on the Boulevard. Okay. Uh, that's one we've tried recently, and it's uh, I've been very impressed. It's really good, yeah. and and it's such a um, it's Latin American inspired food, which is not quite the same as the Tex-Mex that right. we're all you know used to here. Um, and that's one reason I think it's it's like got a pretty good customer base at this point, despite being relatively new. Yeah, that's, I was impressed. I thought, you know, it used to be a Taco Villa. So yeah, yeah. It's going to look like Taco Villa, and it sure doesn't. It was not Taco Villa. Doesn't food. Take, I mean, I love Taco Villa uh, too. But same, same here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, what's your favorite local coffee shop? Um, I'm going to say Palace Coffee. I mean, the coffee is great, but also I think the owners, they've created a culture of uh, giving back to the community. And also, I think they treat their staff very well. So mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, I'm, it's been my basically my second office while we're still transitioning. So I hang out there quite a bit. Okay. That's probably true for a lot of people. Right. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Uh, well, the event center has been, uh, <laughs> you know, within the past six months or so, but the Big Texan itself, 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. Really? Yeah. You have been there, though. Yes, You've I've been there. there. Yes. It's just, you know. Well, it's it's it's, uh, it's not a restaurant really for you, for right? It's, for, it's it's great if you're a tourist to come through. I think it's great if uh, you know. There's, I guess, uh, yeah. I just haven't been there in a long time. Okay. Well, unless it's your birthday and you can go get free. Oh, that's true. Yeah, good point. I forgot about that. Okay, that concludes the eight straight questions, Jim. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So, what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Uh, well, as far as related to the Panhandle and kind of going back to the history part. Uh, there's a book called Empire of the Summer Moon, which yeah. I think is a great, I mean, it's it's really, you really get immersed in it because it talks about the history of the area before there are even uh, uh, settlements, really, in the Comanche tribes and Quanah Parker and his story and how he was very resilient and basically transformed his whole life and became a successful rancher after mm-hmm. he was the last chief of the Comanches. So I think it's a very good uh, read. I think it's by S.C. Gwynn. S.C. Gwynn. And I, I read that actually earlier this year. And the, the thing that I think stuck out to me was how large of a territory the Comanches ruled over. Yeah. That they were riding from, you know, Nebraska deep into Texas. And that was that was just what they covered. And they could cover it really quickly on their horses. Yeah. And it was this, yeah, the same area where I grew up at in Colorado as part of their territory mm-hmm. is, is Panhandle. So such a vast territory to cover yeah. when you don't have, you know, motor vehicles or anything like that to do it is, is pretty stunning. Yeah. They really transformed. Uh, well, I think they're the horse. I think they really transformed mm-hmm. their whole culture. Okay. That's, that's a great recommendation. Empire of the summer moon by SC Gwynn. Uh, and I know he actually did some research for that book at Panhandle Plains mm-hmm. using their archives. Um, and you can see, it may not be out now, but Quanah Parker's headdress is one of the prized possessions of that museum, uh, and it's on display every once in a while. It may not be currently, but... Yeah, I think they did take it off display yeah. just recently, did rotate it out. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, but well, it's a it's a jewel of this area. Okay, Jim Womack, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Jim for the interview. Learn more about family support services at fss-ama.org. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and also to sponsors the Texas Outdoor Musical, Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, SKP Creative, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. 
This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Amarillo. Amarillo's executive producers include Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 255. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.